Consider yourselves to be a competitive person. You know, just, yeah, okay, quite a few of you. Like, I'm a super competitive guy. Like, I'm that person where it's like, I hate to lose more than I even like to win. Like, anyone else, you understand? And it's like of everything in life. It's not just like sports growing up, but like even today, like I've got, I've got young kids. And so like when my son's like, hey, let's go play basketball. Guess what? He still never scored on me. Like, just like no holds bar and just never gonna happen. You gotta earn the right to make that bucket, bro. And uh, I married into this family where they're much more passive types of people. They're great, they're loving, they're kind, they're generous. They're just not really the competitive type, And um, except when it comes to board games. And there was like this unwritten rule that I had to learn how to play this game called Euchre. Anybody? The card game Euchre. Okay, yeah. So it's like a mid, big Midwest thing. And um, my, my in-laws are like crazy good Euchre players. Like I'm pretty sure they like send signals to each other for like 30 years. They've been developing this secret code. And so whenever we get together, we play board games. And it always gets to that one point where you just are just frustrated and you want to quit because you're just losing so much, right? And we recently started playing this board game called Settlers of Catan. Anybody, if you've ever heard of it, it's an awesome game. It's kind of like Risk. Sometimes it takes like 30 minutes. Sometimes it takes like an hour and a half, three hours. And a few months ago, we were, um, we were kind of on a short vacation together as a family. And we were like four hours into this game of Catan. And I was like this close to winning. All I had to do was get one more road and the game would be mine. And every single time, my mother-in-law would roll the dice. She'd roll a seven. And what would she do? She placed the thief onto my property. And then of course you roll it and you don't get the resource if you understand the game. And so it finally just got to this point where I just, I'm just standing holding it all in. I'm just like, no, I'm so frustrated right now. And they were like, whoa, bro, it's okay. I was like, I want to go to bed more than anything else. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that before. Perhaps you've got a kid at home who plays video games and you've heard the screaming and the shouts because they, you know, dropped down in a battle royale and got killed right away and the rage quitting ensues or whatever it is. You know, there's this, this, this sense within us that sometimes we get angry, we get unsettled about things, and it's not really for a good reason. But as we continue our teaching series today called At the Table, we're going to look at a story with Jesus in which he does something pretty what seems to be out of character, perhaps something a little bit off base than what he normally does. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 21 this morning. You can download our church app and follow along with there as well. There are notes. Uh, if you bring your own Bible, it'll also be on the screen Matthew chapter 21. Last week, we kicked off this teaching series called At the Table, in which we're going to look at multiple instances in Jesus's life in which something pretty interesting or different happens around the table. Because tables for us kind of were the same thing for tables for, for people back then. They kind of represented a few different things. It represented comfort. It represented community. It's where relationships happen as well as hard conversations. And today's passage, it's around a different type of table, but I think there's a, uh, definitely something that we can draw out of it this morning. In Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 12, it says these words. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the table's of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. 
It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He's quoting some Old Testament passages there, Jeremiah and Isaiah. So I want to start this morning by asking kind of some two tension questions for us. Is number one, what was Jesus getting at? When in, by flipping over the tables and using this analogy of a house of prayer versus a den of robbers. And number two, what would Jesus do if he walked in our doors today? What would he do or say to us? You see, most often this passage is used, you can also find it in John chapter 2, I believe, uh, of people kind of talking about anger. It becomes a message about anger, and people say, well, you see, it's not a sin to get angry. Even Jesus got angry. And so when I get angry or frustrated or mad or visceral at something, see, Jesus did it too. It's all good. But the thing is, is Jesus' anger was very poignant, There was injustice that was happening. It was a righteous anger, so to speak. Now, I don't know about you, but getting angry at a board game and deciding to quit because, you know, you landed on on a bankruptcy for the third time in a row in Monopoly isn't necessarily the most righteous form of anger. But the thing is, is this passage is so much more about Jesus got angry and perhaps if we are righteous in our anger, it's fine too. That there's some real deep meaning when we slow down and we pause to reflect over the flipping of the tables that Jesus did. You see, this passage comes right after this triumphant entry. Jesus mounts a humble animal, a donkey. He rides into town. The palm fronds are being laid in front of him, and people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David, God in the highest. And right after he cleanses the table, Matthew talks about how he goes and curses the fig tree. You see, this passage is more about Jesus' concern for people, spiritual leaders, and the church at large. There's three facets that Jesus we see getting angry at here, though. Number one, there's an exploitation happening. Number two, there seems to be a lack of worship. And number three, that certain people were being kept out. We'll see more of that in a little bit. You see, the concept of a currency exchange was actually fairly common In this period. In fact, if you went to Jerusalem and you were getting ready to enter the temple, it would have been common for you to go and visit kind of like a currency exchange place so that you could A, pay the temple tax, and B, so you could buy if you did not bring with you your ritual sacrifice. And so for us, like, you know, you don't walk in our doors and people aren't selling you things and there's not ATMs in the lobbies or any of that type of stuff. But for them, it would have been a common thing. Because when you went, you had to pay the temple tax. And the temple tax was nothing other than to support the priests, the pastors of that day, in order for them to to do their job. But the temple tax was taken in a very specific form of currency, which was called the Tyrian shekel, or a half shekel. And the reason that they used it was because their currency was not like ours. You see, I've got two quarters here. And if you were to go to your car or you go to your piggy bank and bring two quarters, they're going to be roughly the same size, right? They're all kind of made with the same amount of weight, the same materials. But back in the ancient Middle East, coins oftentimes had different weights. They had different shapes because they didn't have machines printing them. And so because the temple wanted to honor and be specific, they said, let's go to the Tyrians and get the Tyrian shekel because they were the most specific, that oftentimes their currency matched. It's kind of like the opposite. If you've ever read stuff in like the 1800s during the gold rush in California, people would oftentimes pay for things with what is called a pinch of gold. 
But with what commerce guys would do is they would find the guy with the biggest fingers to take their pinch, right? You don't go get your little kid and say, hey, go grab the pinch. Instead, they say, go find Butch. Butch has got some big fingers. Go get him to do the pinch. And so it's the exact opposite. They're saying the Tyrians, they're this people who live in a trade society. Their coins are as uh, simple and trustworthy and precise that exists. And so you would pay your temple tax so that then you could also bring in your ritual sacrifice. Now, some people wouldn't bring a ritual sacrifice for the sole purpose of you ran the risk of by the time it got there, it could be unclean. It could touch something that was dead. And so you'd have to start all over again already. So you could always purchase the animals to go in and pay the price for your debt, for your sin, um, and be made right with God. But here's the irony that Jesus sees as he's walking in. It's that the money changers, get this, they were taking a slice of the what? The precise, specific currency for their own gain to sell doves. Now what a dove was, is dove was a animal that was given in exchange if you could not afford to bring the lamb, the goat, or the bull. It's for those who were poor, for those who had traveled a long distance, they could bring a dove as a substitute for their sacrifice instead. In fact, doves were oftentimes so inexpensive that some temples just gave them away so that you could go and be made right with God. And so we begin to paint this picture. Here we have these men, these spiritual leaders, so to speak, who have begun to be found a way to leverage the church for their own benefit. Let me take a slice off of the currency that's supposed to be precise and trustworthy so that I can now sell you an animal sacrifice that should be pretty easy. Sometimes you could find for free. You start to get the picture here, don't you? Something is just a little bit off. That people were running the system, they were abusing what was supposed to help people get to God, and instead it was exploiting people as they were trying to seek him out. And so the snowball effect kind of happened. Because not only were people being exploited, they were being kept out. And so this is what Jesus began to see, is that the temple became an economy of commerce over an economy of worship. It's not to say that an economy of commerce shouldn't have happened. It's not to say even in our churches today, they're not things that we aren't called to breathe. We're called to bring our tithes and offerings. We're called to give of our time, talents, and treasures. But it's supposed to be secondary to our worship of God. See, that's why the prophet Hosea, Jesus is is known of quoting this on many occasions. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, he says, Does not the Lord require mercy, not sacrifice, steadfast love rather than burnt offerings? So this is all happening, and then it's like, da-da-da-da-dun, enter stage right, rage quit Jesus, coming in to flip the tables because he is not okay with what is happening right now. And he enters in and he sees what's happening. And it's not like this super calm, okay, I know this is going to hurt your feelings, but let me just kind of, yeah, let's just tip this over a little bit, okay? We probably, like he comes in and it's like Bill's mafia status. He's like jumping off the third row, giving people the people's elbows, dropping on these tables, kicking stuff over. It says he's overturning and he's kicking people out. Like this is amazing. Like this is the type of Jesus that I love. Like he's not just like this super calm guy, like I'm just chilling, you know, oh, let's not do that. He's like, Yo, bro, this is, we can't be doing this. He doesn't punch anyone, but I'd be like hyped up. Like, let's go, let's go attack the world here. And so he's cleared everyone out. 
And all that's left at this point is kind of a crowd of people who didn't run away scared. And we've got some chief priests here, and he just looks at them and he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of robbers. If you were to read this account in the book of Mark, Mark adds something at the end of house of prayer. So this is supposed to be a house of prayer, and he'll say, for all nations. But you've turned it into a den of thieves. You've turned it into a place where people who think like you, act like you, have the same mindset of you, where you hide out together. Only someone who has to be seeking it out and know, so to speak, the password to get in can find this place. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 my house, my church is the exact opposite. It's a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus isn't upset about the ritual stuff being done. You notice he doesn't say, how dare you charge a temple tax? Who do you think you are requiring a sacrifice or offering this to people? Instead, no, no, what he is saying is this is supposed to be a place for all people, regardless of their past, present, future, regardless of their heritage, regardless of what they believed a week ago, this is a place for all people to be able to come in and worship God. They were building barriers instead of bridges. See, God's desire has always been from day one that anyone who desires to come to him, that he has made a way. In the Old Testament system, that's what the sacrifices was for. If you wanted to be made right with God, here is how you did. But for us today, we don't go to God with animal sacrifice. We point to Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. He is the sacrifice that we bring on our behalf to be made right with God. We should never think that anyone is unable to find rest and restitution with God, that anyone should be able to find God at any moment because of the blood of Jesus. So what was it then that Jesus was unsettling in the life of those in the temple? Look at how this passage continues, picking back up in verse 14. It says, so the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read, and he quotes the book of Psalms here, from the lips of the children and the infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them, and he went out to the city of Bethany, where he spent the night. In this time frame, there was definitely this patriarchal society. And it's kind of like you had the men, had the women, the children, then you had those who had some type of illness. And there's these different quarters and these different sections in the temple. And here come these blame, blind, lame, and these children, second-tier citizens, chasing after Jesus, calling out to him, offering up praise and worship before him. These two groups of, of second-tier citizens, they are emphasized and they are acknowledged in this text. Some scholars often point to this is why we can somewhat believe the validity of Scripture. 
Because historically, other documents of this age would leave out those instances. Because they were kind of seen as second tier in this time frame, well, that would minimize the power or the authority of Jesus if he was seen being around the sick, the lame, the paralyzed, the crippled, the children, the women. You know, they would kind of leave out all of those instances to just kind of talk about how he was around the men. And the, the gospels are very clear that Jesus oftentimes did things backwards. He oftentimes reached out and went to those that other people thought he shouldn't have. So here's this, this instance, and then the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, they see what's happening, and we get the term they were indignant. I looked up the Greek word for the word indignant, and it came back as indignant. That wasn't helpful for me, so I went to the English translation of what does indignant mean, because it's not a word that I use very often. Indignance is anger or annoyance at perceived unfair treatment. We catch the irony here. Who was indignant in this story? Was it the children? No, because I don't know what that means. <laughs> was it the blind, the lame, the sick, the women? No. It was the super spiritual guys. They were the indignant ones. The Pharisees, the chief priests, it's like this, how dare you, Jesus, call us out for doing slimy and sketchy things? <laughs> who, uh, who art thou to you think dost thou uh, henceforth think we are? It's just so, so ironic because what Jesus is essentially doing is he is threatening their authority and threatening their comfort. By Jesus walking in and kicking over their tables and minimizing their rules and their regulations that were there to prop them up and not lift up everyone else. And Jesus says, no, 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 I am greater than this temple. I am bigger than this house of worship. And let me tell you what this place is for. It's not for you, bucko. It's for me and for me alone. Here's the interesting thing about these chief priests. They look really good on the outside. The truth we can get this from this is that we can check all the boxes spiritually and still have hearts far from God. Stings a little bit, doesn't it? We can check all the boxes spiritually, do all the right things, and still have hearts far from God. Nobody memorized more scripture. Nobody probably even gave as much money as these men did and yet their hearts were still far from God. Does that mean we don't engage with Scripture? Absolutely not. Does that mean we, not, we don't give back to the church? Absolutely not. But Jesus is after your heart more than anything else. Because if he gets your heart, everything else will go with it. That's why Jesus is known for saying in Mark chapter 2, it's the sick who need a doctor, not the healthy. That the authority of Jesus is to both heal and to save. That you and I alike, we need both. We need to be healed from our wounds, our pasts, our hurts, but we also need to have a Lord who we worship above all else. In John chapter 2, Jesus even then says, he goes into the temple and he says, I'm going to tear this down and rebuild it three days later. Because the house of worship is found in the heart of God, not in the heart of man. 
The chief priests, they checked all the boxes. They were settled in their spirituality, their comfort, their thoughts, their opinions, their view of God, and their view of others. Whereas the blind, the lame, the children, they couldn't check any boxes. They weren't even allowed to. And so Jesus does what Jesus does most. He unsettles the settled and he settles the unsettled. Let me say that again. Jesus does in this story what he does most. He unsettles the settled. Those who think they have it going on. Those who think they are kind of above everyone else. Those who think that they don't need to be called out or convicted or held accountable for their way of life. Those who are oftentimes feel good in their own spiritual well-being. He oftentimes is found unsettling those. And then he turns to those who are unsettled. I have nothing to show for it. I've often felt like I've been kept out. My past is a little messy. It's a little murky. I don't really know. I don't really have a whole lot to offer. And in that unsettled nature, Jesus oftentimes brings himself as an offering of peace, love, joy, grace, mercy, saying, let me settle you with God. So my question is for both of us, is where we pause. Do either of those represent you or me or us on a regular basis? How might the gospel of Jesus need to either unsettle or settle you in this season of life? Perhaps it's a big thing or a small thing, but if we're going to be spirit-led people, if we're going to be a house of prayer, if we're going to allow the spirit to lead, guide, convince, convict us in our calling towards Jesus, we must both be willing to be unsettled when we feel comfortable and settled when we feel uncomfortable. As we remind ourselves of his never-ending love and grace, Jesus is oftentimes wanting to do something in each and every one of us. He is never done with you, and he's never content with what he has done already. There's usually a little bit more work to be done. When Jesus unsettles something within us, do we tend to puff out our chests and say, well, how dare you, Jesus? Who do you think you are? When the word of God ruins your vibe. Do you push back or do you lean in? How dare you, Jesus, require that type of obedience from me? How dare you, God, think that I suggest that I tithe? Can you actually believe I'm supposed to forgive everyone? Does he really expect me to love those that I disagree with? Perhaps there's some unsettling that Jesus needs to do in our hearts. Or maybe there's some settling that he needs to do in your life today. You feel like you're a nobody. You come to Jesus saying, I have nothing to offer. This is all that I am. I've made a mess. It's been a week. It's been a month. It's been a year. It's been a life. I don't really know what is going on. And Jesus says, I will settle you there with my grace and my love. What we see is that Jesus flips the tables physically so that he may seek to flip their hearts spiritually. So how might Jesus be looking to flip our hearts spiritually if he were to come into our church, our temple today? Here's three questions that I feel like Jesus might ask us. Number one, he might simply ask, is this a house of prayer? Is this a house of prayer? And it's that of word that's important, isn't it? It's not that a house that prays, that of word speaks to the foundation. It's integral, it's built in, it's ingrained. Like, have you ever met someone who is like a fan of a team versus someone who is like a super fan? 
Or like the person who likes a product, but then this person is like, nope, I only use those products. Like you meet those people where it's like, yeah, I like that team. And then you meet the person where their schedule completely revolves around that team, where everything they do makes sure, like, hey, nobody talk to me from this time frame because the team is on and everywhere in their house and in their car, they've got the flag. Like there's a difference between there's somebody who likes a team and a super fan of a team. Or there's people who, who, who like certain stores or products. Like, I don't discriminate if I'm going to shop at Walmart or Target or Meyer or, or Blaine's Farm and Fleet, wherever it is, I'm going to go, I'm going to find. But there's those people out there, most of the time ladies, who are like, yo, you ever been to Target though? It's pumpkin spice season, are you guys aware of that? Somebody brings me a pumpkin spice latte, I'm going to drink it. But I'm not going to be like, this is the greatest notion of all time the Lord hath provided. We are made right in the world. Again, it is pumpkin spice season. And then they go to Target and get their pumpkin spice latte. Then they're walking around being like, you guys understand what is happening right here. Life is totally fulfilled. I'm at Target with my pumpkin spice latte. Life is legit. Let me tell everyone about it. There's a difference between the person who just likes something and the person who it becomes a part of them. And I think there's a difference between a church of prayer and a church that prays. There's a difference there. And if we're going to be that type of church, we need to be praying Christians, not just Christians that happen to pray. And I'll be honest with you. This is convicting for me. I'm not the world's best prayer. I seek to pray every single day. I've kind of got a, a little bit of, a, of an outline or whatever. But like, if you want prayer from someone on our staff, trust me, you don't want to come to me. You're going to want to go to like Aaron or Garen or, or one of our elders, just fantastic people of prayer. Reading the Bible, sure, boom, I got that down. When it comes to prayer, it's a, it's a discipline for me that sometimes I don't always hit. So how do we become praying Christians? I've always kind of liked this idea. It's that you need to plan to pray and you need to pray your plans. You need to plan to pray. If we're going to become a house of prayer, praying Christians, you need to pick a part of your day and a way to pray. Plan it out and pray. But then you also need to pray your plans. As you go throughout your day, as you drive along the road, as you go from meeting to meeting, person to person, pray. Plan to pray and pray your plans. So our elders have come up with a monthly prayer initiative. It's so awesome that every month they're saying, we want our church to be committed to praying about this. You can find it on the app. There's signs as you leave the doors that kind of talk about this is the monthly prayer initiative. But we will never be a house of prayer unless we are first praying Christians. Second question Jesus might ask us is, are we building bridges or barriers? Are we people that build bridges or build barriers? Imagine you're in the crowd in this moment, you're watching this unfold, the dust kind of settles, and you kind of peek and see who's left. It's the children shouting, the lame, the sick, they're curious about what just happened. And Jesus builds bridges more than anything else. Because think of it this way. Doesn't building bridges at a minimum, just at a minimum, if you build bridges with people, doesn't it cause curiosity that people want to find out more. We live in a culture that doesn't talk about building bridges. Rather, we live in a cancel culture. You don't think like I do, act like I do, vote like I do, post like I do. Ergo, I will write you off. 
You don't get a second chance. You don't get a chance to explain yourself. I am going to build barriers around each and every person so that all I am left with is the people who are comfortable like me, who think like me, act like me, vote like me, view things like I do. We build barriers in a cancel culture. And when you instead of build barriers and you build bridges, people at least become curious at a minimum. Like you might not win them over, but it becomes so antithetical to the way that everyone else lives. Like, whoa, 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 why would you do that? Because building bridges causes curiosity. All five of our church values, I think, seek to help one another build bridges. A loving community, outward compassion, growing faith, life-giving generosity, active multiplication. All of these are about building bridges. Building bridges for people who have yet to experience Jesus as Lord and Savior. Bridges for one another so that we may grow in the likeness of Christ and bridges for our community to help when we can. That's why I love this church. So many of you have that commitment to be bridge builders instead of barrier builders. But let's not get settled though, yeah? Let's continue to build bridges to help people find and follow Jesus. Number three, the third question Jesus might ask is, who are you here for? Who are you here for? Why are you here? Secret about me is I'm a huge Matthew McConaughey fan. All right, all right, all right. Um, I, my, my infatuation with Sir McConaughey didn't come from We Are Marshall or, or one of his like uh, Lincoln lawyer. It came from the first time I watched How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. And I remember watching that movie by myself in high school one summer day and be like, this is a cool dude. Like, he's super jacked. He's just like a dude's dude. I kind of like the character he portrayed. And it slowly became like one of my favorite movies. I love the concept in that one. But there's this scene in the movie near the end where they've kind of found out the secret about each other, and they're at this cocktail party, and they get up singing the Carly Simon hit, You're So Vain. And they start saying, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. And then they spread, well, you so vain, and then they start pointing back and forth on and on and on. You're so vain, you probably think this is about you. If we're not careful, doesn't that become church sometimes for us? That church is for me, my wants, my desires, my heart. There's this uh, comedian, his name is John Christ. He, he created this video in which he read some pretty comical Google reviews about people's reviews of churches. If you didn't know, you can go review our church on Google. Have fun. But these are a couple of ones that kind of were funny. This person said, I just got bored quick. The worship was okay, and the message was a little too monotone and screamy for me. Two stars. This isn't our church, by the way. Okay, just <laughs> so you know, right? Monotone, screamy. Like, those things don't match very well, Okay. There's another one here that he read. He said, four stars instead of five because there was no worship after the sermon. Okay, cool, cool, This was my favorite one. This was so good. One star. The paninis were terrible. What church is handing out paninis? Like, sorry, I want to go to that church. Like, we're just doing hot dogs, but paninis, that sounds legit. You ever been there, though? Not just in church, or just not even just faith, but in life. It's just been about you, 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 you. I've been there. It happens too, right? Like you don't even want to try and all of a sudden you just find yourself in that mode. But when we are unsettled in our ways, not God's, 
Whenever we are in conversations to win arguments and not people, whenever we just show up to enjoy the show and to never serve, when we let uh, the heart to gain information but not actually transformation, that question kind of sings a little. Why are you here? Who are you here for? Is it for you or is it to worship Jesus? Because the truth of the matter is we will always be unsettled when Jesus unsettles our comforts in life. But that's okay. Because he is good and his graciousness lasts forever. So let me end with this this morning as we get ready for our time of response. Is what tables in your heart might Jesus be looking to overturn today? What tables in your heart might Jesus be kind of prompting, let me turn this over. Let me flip this around so that you can understand it. Perhaps it's the table of Savior. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 only I can do this. You don't have to clean your life up first. Come to me. I have died on your behalf so that you may have life and have it to the full. Perhaps the table that you need to let Jesus flip over in your life is that you don't have to be perfect because you can't be perfect and that Jesus alone is the savior of this life. Perhaps the table is similar but also a little different. Maybe it's the Lord table. Who is Lord of the table of your heart? Is it you? your schedule, your plans, your desires, or is it Jesus? Perhaps it's the table of, of giving back to God. The table for a lot of us that's probably one of the last ones we hold back from letting God turn over. God, you can have my salvation. God, you can have my Sunday, but you can't have my money. And Jesus kind of oftentimes uses this as a litmus test for a lot of people. And so if, if Jesus is maybe stirring that within you, saying, hey, hey that table needs to be overturned, and you need to feel, to give, to tithe. Perhaps that's where it needs to start. Our church app, we have the Give app. That's a great way. It's safe, secure. You can give one time. You can give reoccurring. It's a table that perhaps Jesus is looking to stir in your heart. Perhaps it's the forgiveness table. No, 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 I like being bitter. I like the power that comes with holding it. Jesus says, forgive as I have forgiven you. Perhaps it's the fruit of the spirit table. Perhaps it's the praying table. Perhaps it's the Bible engagement. Whatever it is, what is the table that Jesus might be looking to overturn in your heart today? So as we move to our time of response this morning, here's kind of this, this great thing I want us to think about. Is whatever table Jesus is concerned with in your life today, if there's an unsettling that's happening within your spirit, Jesus invites you to his table, to the Lord's table, to remember how and why we gather together. If you have your communion elements, I invite you to get those out with me this morning. And let's remember the Lord's table as we perhaps think and reflect on the tables that Jesus might be wanting to overturn in our hearts this morning. Because if he overturns a table that we're uncomfortable with, let us return to the table that we have found peace and love, hope, grace, mercy. It's the table in which we remember the body of Christ and the blood of Christ on our behalf. Jesus, on the last night with his disciples, he held up the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. 
take and eat. Then he held up the cup, he held up the wine, said, this is my blood shed for you. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship this morning? Heavenly Father, you are good, you are great, you are powerful. Unsettle us, Lord, if we have become settled in our ways. There's an issue of of obedience or an unwillingness to surrender to you. May we listen and know the flipping of that table is for your glory and your goodness. But God, I also pray for those of us who feel unsettled because of our life or our past or our choices or, or perhaps the week that it's been, whatever it may be, God, may you settle us in knowing your love and your grace and your mercy. At your table, we are always welcome. It's where we find new life. Be with us as we continue to worship today. May we worship you in spirit, truth, boldness. May we not hold back in the same way you didn't hold back by giving of yourself on our behalf. It's your name that we pray. Amen.